welcome to Running Off the Rails. I'm Ariel Rasco. And I'm Raymond O'Connor. So your players have joined a faction. Now what? I think this is a question that actually doesn't have clear answers in a lot of the Wizards of the Coast published material, but is really important to make a fun and realistic campaign where your players feel like there was a purpose for joining this faction. In a previous episode, we talked about designing factions from a narrative perspective, how they can fit into your greater campaign story and themes. But this week, we want to talk about the game mechanics of a faction. Why would a player from a mechanical perspective want to be a part of a faction? And then we're going to use an article from Arcadia 7 that we think is a really excellent example of how to prepare a faction for your players. If a player were to pick a subclass and it didn't have a mechanical impact on the abilities that they were able to use, I think that subclasses would fade into the background and it wouldn't really matter that you were a trickery cleric because you're just a trickery cleric in name. All too often, it feels like this happens with factions as well. Players interact with this character that's a part of a faction. We hear about this faction and maybe hear about the faction's goals and their themes, and the player joins, and they get their badge, and they're in the faction, and then it never comes up again. I think that's a perfect point, Ray, that these subclass abilities, if you never used them, wouldn't feel like you have a subclass. So the same thing with a faction. If you never interact with the faction, it's like you're not even in that faction. So the easiest way to start making your faction feel important to your players is by creating boons for your players once they join the faction. When you join the faction, you get a either mechanical advantage, like a proficiency that you might not have had before, or you can get a mechanical advantage in the form of an item, something that identifies you as part of that faction and also has an extra use. So you can show somebody in the faction, hey, I have this medallion, Here, I'm part of the faction, kind of a secret handshake almost, but also that medallion can be magical and have a property that can help you out in combat. These passive boons can also be relevant because maybe they give your players access to privileged information or privileged resources. We see this in Critical Role a lot. Bo is a part of the Cobalt Soul, and because she's a part of the Cobalt Soul, she gives her party access to the Cobalt Soul's libraries. This is really cool. If Bo wasn't a part of this organization, the Mighty Nine would not have access to a lot of the lore that they actually get access to throughout the course of the adventure. This is a really effective way to make players feel like they're a part of the faction and that there is a benefit to being a part of this faction. With all these factions, there's also an understanding that you're in a bit of a brotherhood. If you're a part of this faction, You'll help each other when you're in need. So we get this concept of favors that I think is very implicit, but we can actually make that explicit. We can put something into the game such that your players have a token or a consumable that they can use to communicate with the faction. That way it's a one-time use object and they are cashing in on their favor. We've talked about consumables being a great tool for DMs earlier in the show. I think this is a perfect example of where cashing in your favor is a difficult decision to make, but it makes the faction feel like it's always there in the background, and you're constantly thinking about, should I cash in on this favor? It's really giving your players a lot of agency with regard to this faction, and making it show up in every combat, even if they don't cash in. 
There's another thing that I think that you can include in your game if you really want a faction to be worth working towards, and that's a symbol of station. So what happens when a player rises up through the ranks of a faction? We know how this kind of works in our regular day-to-day lives. If you work at a company, you kind of want to get promoted because you'll make more money and you'll have more clout and maybe more respect and people will like you. And <laughs> yeah, that's exactly how that works. But how does this work in Dungeons & Dragons? Well, you could maybe provide the players with a way to get more gold. But what I think is way cooler is to give the player a symbol of their station. So this is usually a powerful magic item or a powerful magic weapon that all adventurers who rise to this level in the faction get. I think it's really cool that maybe your character is gifted with a Heronmark blade and it marks them as a competent swordsman in this sword master's guild and they're traveling across the world and then eventually in a tavern they run into another person with a different heron marked blade all of a sudden you have this awesome moment where the player has all these things running through their mind. Is this person actually a member of my guild? Of course they're a member of my guild. Who could defeat someone who is powerful enough to have another Heronmark blade? Does this person interact with the faction the way that I do? Or are they different in some way? Oh, their sword looks a little bit different than mine. What does that mean? I really love this idea of once your players reach a certain level in the faction, they get a powerful thing that is always present on their person that shows the world that they are special. This ties in really well to something we've talked about in another episode about rumors and reputations. If somebody knows that only a master swordsman can have this blade and you show up to a diplomatic encounter with this person, they're going to treat you differently. And that feels very special and makes it feel like being a part of this faction has consequences and impacts your game even when you're not directly interacting with the faction. But there's other places where you can kind of bring titles into your game. And I think prestige classes are something that have existed in different games and different editions. And you can kind of take inspiration from there too, that you need to meet certain qualifications in order to get certain abilities. It's a really fun, really successful feature of other games, and it works perfectly with factions as a way to go up the ranks and feel like the faction is dynamic and changing as your campaign moves forward. That's definitely one of the things that I think is a little bit of a bummer about Dungeons & Dragons, which is if you aren't multi-classing, you don't really have a progression tree. You take levels in a single class And you'll always get the same features as someone else who's also leveling in that same class. But with a faction, you introduce this secondary path of progression that the players can interact with that is happening in parallel or at the same time as their maybe their experience points. And then this brings us to the last pillar that we think is really important to define at a granular level, if your players are going to interact with a faction a lot. The faction should insert itself into your adventures and make demands of the adventurers. If your player is able to call in a favor and have another member of the faction show up and help them in a conflict, 
that means that other members of the guild can do the same thing to your player character. Exactly. So your player characters roll into town and they have a quest that they're on. But all of a sudden, another person with another heron marked blade shows up and they say, hey, I have a favor that you need to help me with. I got to go and kill this dragon over here. Or I have to go and steal this thing from this house or this manor and I need your help. And then the other party members have this fun kind of decision that they need to make. Are they going to involve themselves in the affairs of this guild or this faction? And if they're calling in a favor, then that means that if you help them, this is the person maybe that you'll be able to call a favor in with in the future. And that's pretty cool that you'll have past history with the person that you might call in to aid you in the future. This reminds me a little bit of an idea that I've had for a long time that I want to write up some kind of supplement for is how to deal with your party member like not being able to show up that day for D&D. And I really love the idea that some faction would come in and call in a favor. And that's the reason why, you know, David can't show up to D&D today because they're off saving the world somewhere else. I think that's a really good way to kind of have fun with uh, scheduling conflicts. But I think this idea of like really opting in is actually the most important thing for me in a lot of ways. And I think it's the thing that the Dungeon Master's Guide really fails when they try to give you an example of a faction with the Harpers. I mean, I don't think it's a good example for a few different reasons, but one of the things that I found very frustrating when I was playing in Storm King's Thunder is that you had this group, the Harpers, and we as a party became very ingratiated with them. We were really good friends with one of their members, and we got to use their teleportation circles like whenever we wanted. And it really just felt at a certain point that the Harpers just became teleportation circles. We just showed up to their houses whenever we felt like and moved around the world. I think this really meant that the Harpers didn't feel like a faction and just felt like a character ability eventually. And they never came and asked us about something. They never came and said, you need to do this. And I don't blame my DM for that. When you look up the Harpers in the DMG, there isn't really anything that tells you they need your help right away. There's no inciting incidents around the Harpers where they are fighting a specific creature and they need your help. What that means is you have to put in a lot of work as the DM to make the Harpers feel like something more interesting than just a bunch of teleportation circles in your game. I think that this is something that happens for a lot of the guilds and factions that are present in the Dungeon Master's Guide or these different adventures that we see around. In Rise of Tiamat, there are many factions that are present, and as a result, it's really hard to get detailed about each and every one. You can't do it. There's not enough space in your adventure to dive in at that level of detail. The same thing happens in Out of the Abyss. You all of a sudden start interacting with all five factions of Faerun. And as a result, the book presents you with five characters that each mostly just exemplify. They're the archetype of that faction. And as a result, they're not very interesting. It's like, oh yeah, that is the Zentarum assassin, and they're very Zentarum-y because they are the person who's supposed to represent the Zentarum in this adventure, and there really aren't that many other people who do that. So of course they're going to be like the stereotypical Zentarum assassin. 
And when you try to look up these factions in the Dungeon Master's Guide or other Wizards of the Coast material, it becomes clear that these factions are not well fleshed out at a mechanical level. We know that the currency that you use to join a faction or rise up the ranks of a faction is renown, and that's useful. And we get some names of different officer levels as you pick up a certain level of renown in these factions. But other than that, we don't get too much guidance about what the passive perks of being a member of one of these organizations is. The DM really is kind of on their own to figure that out. We don't know so much about what the different levels of this organization have as far as symbols of station. It's not like every member of the Zentarum has this one signature knife uh, that has this really cool maybe like teleportation ability, although that would be pretty cool, and maybe I will start implementing that in my game. And you don't get the vibe that you can really call in favors with the faction either, and as a result, it kind of just becomes a backdrop. It becomes like a ribbon that you hang on your character that where you can say, yeah, they're a member of the Zentarum, but it doesn't really insert itself in the day-to-day, session-to-session game. So I think that brings us to what we think is a very excellent example of a faction that follows through on all of these things that we are looking for. It's from Arcadia Issue 7, and it's called The Pickling Guild. An Organization of Gourmands and Heroes by Sharang Biswas. This guild starts off as something that you wouldn't necessarily think of as your normal heroic guild. It's a group of people that share recipes and resources for pickling and fermenting you know, fruits and vegetables. But in fact, there's a secret layer where this pickling guild has a goal, ridding the world of evil and infectious disease caused by rot. It's a, it's a really unique take on a guild, I think. So I wasn't sure what I was getting into when I started reading it, but it actually delivers so well on the thematics. It makes me feel like it's a real thing that should exist in my campaigns. Ray, what did you like about this guild? I mean, it is so thorough. So when we talk about how the mechanical details and even lore details of the factions that exist in Wizards of the Coast material is kind of just like missing. Oh my God, is that not the case with the Pickling Guild? The article is 10 pages long. There's 10 pages of information about this guild. And it's not just like pictures either. It's like 10 pages of dense text as well. Which is which is a lot. Like when I was reading the article, I was like, oh my God. I was like, when is this article going to end? I mean, it's it, all of it was great and like informative, but it just kept going and going. But when your players decide to join a faction, especially if all of the players are joining the faction, the faction can kind of become your campaign or it can become the adventure. So... 10 pages for an entire adventure or an entire setting is actually maybe not enough. So I really appreciate how packed with information this article is. Compare this to the Harpers, which is two paragraphs. Really, really tiny text. Look it up in your Dungeon Master's Guide if you have one. This is so much more rich than what Wizards of the Coast is providing you. And I think I would use almost all of it in the event of... A player joining this guild. It starts off with 
what the guild is at a big scope level. So when we think about our last episode that we did on factions, where we were talking about how factions fit into your world narratively and thematically, and what makes a faction a faction, they deliver on that in the first page and a half, where they talk about what is the faction doing in the world? What is their mission? What makes a person a good fit for this faction? And then they start to talk about guild structure. So you join the faction, and what does that mean when you're a new joinee? They give a lot of examples of like activities that new members might participate in and what it's like to be a new member. And they talk about some of the things that you have access to, which is access to rare foods and wines and delicacies and information about preserving those types of things, which is very thematic and very cool, but isn't very mechanically compelling. But that's okay, because you've just joined this organization. And you get like a monthly newsletter that I'm really inspired. I want to make one of these newsletters and see if I can incorporate it into my game. I think that would be really fun. Yeah, I, I love that idea that like your player is a member of a faction and they get the like propaganda (laughs) from the faction (laughs) exactly telling their members how they should feel about different world events that are happening in the world i i think that that's a great idea but then you start to find out about the guild's more secret purpose which is this idea that they're fighting against rot and poison and decay And you find out about the secret levels of the guild that you can aspire to. You can become a fermenter, which gives you access to a pretty cool sickle, like a weapon, which will allow you to identify other members of the faction. I love that they give out something like this at a pretty low level. And then you also get a copper guild badge, which is keyed to your soul. So only you can use it. And I think that this is a really interesting mechanic that I really haven't seen anywhere else in Dungeons & Dragons. But in the case of a badge, I think it's very appropriate, and I like it a lot. The sickle does weird stuff, too. So if you want, you can use a bonus action to turn it into a magical green slimy weapon. And it does poison damage in this state. And I think that's also a really cool way maybe to introduce magical attacks and magical weapons to a low-level character without it being overpowered or taking over their class abilities. And this actually was definitely a criticism that I have of this article, is that the weapon abilities, while they are very cool, they almost seem like they go directly against the point of the the guild, which is to like fight against poison and rot. Oh, that's super interesting, actually. I was very surprised by this like slime poison ability. It seemed very strange to me. I think it makes sense that someone who is gifted in fighting against the forces of rot and decay and poison would know how to make poison and use it in combat, but it almost seems like it goes against the morals of being a member of the guild. So maybe that's a piece of criticism that I would offer up to the author of this article. Well, that's a good point. That's, uh, I liked it mechanically, but thematically, maybe it's a bit backwards. Yeah, definitely. And then after becoming a fermenter, if you do a good enough job in the guild, you might be promoted to an artisan. And artisans are probably the level that you would have a high-level adventurer get to. So I like how there aren't 
that many stages in the guild. In the Faerun guilds that are presented in the Dungeon Masters guild, there's like six different stations that you can rise to, which would basically mean that if you wanted to get to a high level in the guild by the end of the adventure, you would need to have been promoted like six times in the time span of maybe like a few weeks or a few months, which is kind of uh, crazy. It's much more reasonable that someone might be promoted twice in the course of a campaign. Yeah, that's a really good point too, that you kind of have to think about how much time is actually passing and what you're looking for from your faction. If you're looking for a campaign that has a lot of downtime, you can maybe spruce up your faction a little bit so it has, you know, these long-term effects and consequences and maybe many different titles. But for most campaigns that I think you're talking about a few weeks or a few months or maybe a year, having a few titles is much more manageable and will make the players feel like they're getting up the ranks of the faction at like a normal pace. Definitely. And when you become a guild artisan, you are gifted with a guild artisan's scythe, which I think is really cool. This is a big weapon. It's an iconic weapon, and it's a weapon that we don't see much interaction with in all of Dungeons and Dragons. So I really think it was a cool choice on the part of the author that they chose a scythe as this guild's iconic weapon. This masterfully crafted scythe has a handle made of petrified wood and wrapped with rings of inlaid brass. Its blade is broad and flat, inscribed with an enameled blazon of the guild. You gain a plus two bonus to attacks and damage made with this magic weapon. And then it has a bunch of really cool magical abilities also. Like, I love the idea that you would be given this awesome hefty scythe, and then maybe in your like penultimate adventure or your second to last adventure before your game ending adventure, you come across someone else who has an artisan scythe. And I think that's really cool because you're not going to miss them. And then this last title is the director level. And I think if I were running a campaign, I wouldn't really have any of my players be able to get to this level. But I think it would be cool to see an artisan that the players knew and worked with strive to get to this level of director. And it's this really secretive thing. You don't know who all the directors are. They hide amongst the annual members of the group. So if you didn't know an artisan and they got promoted into the director position, that would be a really cool change of knowledge where for the longest time you would have had no idea who the directors are. But now you have an in. Now you have, you know, the ear of somebody who's in charge of this guild and can really make a difference in the world. So I love the structure that they've put together here. I think it makes for a really fun guild experience just from learning about who's in it, let alone the missions that they might go on, which are described later in the article. I like the idea that this director level is not associated with an increase in power. It is almost entirely an increase in influence and organizational power, which I think is really cool because you could promote a player from artisan to director maybe after their final battle against the forces of evil. And your player won't be all that upset that they never got to play as a director. Or if you play in a continuous setting, where the previous player characters of your players continue to be NPCs in your world. I love the idea that a player who is playing as a member of the Pickling Guild and finished the campaign as an artisan 
now is a director and they meet their director character playing a different character in a later campaign. Oh yeah, that sounds so freaking cool. I've met up with previous player characters in campaigns and it's always so fun. This idea that the long-term vision for your character would end up being the leader of a faction that you were a part of is really great. And I think you're right that it would feel really cool to meet up with a director in a different campaign if that director was somebody that, you know, you had played with at the table before and was now under the DM's control. And something that I really like about this as well is they're very explicit about what favors you can call in. If you're an artisan, you have the ability to call in for the help of an acolyte, a scout, or a spy stat block about once per month without anyone asking too many questions is what it says, which I love. They're not like super hardcore about it, but they they give the DM some guidance here where if if your players are asking more frequently than that, you might be denied or, oh, sorry, there's, there's no one who can help you. And then if you're a director, you can call in for the services of an acolyte scatter spy, just like an artisan, but you can also call in for the help of an artisan, a bandit captain, a druid, or a priest, which is pretty great. All of those things would be pretty helpful in a uh, combat scenario. Yeah, so I think these are some of the questions that we had going in. Like, what are the ways that this guild calls upon your adventuring party? What are the ways that this guild influences your campaign? And so there's a few sections like Ray was talking about with calling for help. And maybe if you are an artisan, the director can directly call you for help. That's one cool way that it could happen. But there are also a list of adventure hooks and how you could meet up with the Pickling Guild. And there's a bunch of NPCs that don't have stat blocks necessarily, but have hooks for how you'd meet those NPCs. And all of these different parts of the article really tie your players into this faction. So one example that I really liked, there's a young girl who's part of the faction that gets possessed by a ghost and wants to kill her own mother. It's like kind of a dark story. But this is one way where if you encountered this in your travels, you would feel really compelled to interact with it because it's a weird and scary story. But also you're a member of the guild, so you could notice that these people are part of your guild and you're like, what is going on here? What has happened that made this like really scary situation come up? Is something in the guild wrong? And then you could kind of go on from there and meet them and they have some other adventure hooks that you can bring up that can tie you back into the guild. If you haven't been working with the Pickling Guild for a few sessions, this can bring you right back in in I think a really cool way. Another member of the guild is a doppelganger. Which I think is pretty interesting because we usually associate doppelgangers with being up to no good. And that isn't not necessarily the case here, which I think exemplifies the idea that this goal that this faction has, the fight against rot and poison and decay, is not good versus evil. There could be evil people that are a member of this guild who do bad things, but because they are helpful in this battle against the undead or people who are trying to spread disease, they are high-ranking members of the guild. And they give a lot of examples of ways that this particular member of the guild will interfere with your player's adventure and insert themselves and give them an explicit quest hook, which is this other thing that we were talking about. And 
the example that you gave, Ariel, is a great example of this, that faction should not be going on in the background. Your players should have opportunities to go on quests for their factions pretty regularly. I mean, it is kind of their like job or their day job. And if the faction doesn't make the player go on a quest for their faction every once in a while, then why are they actually a member of the faction is a question I have. Yeah, totally. Just with these NPCs that we've highlighted, I also wanted to highlight a section that's called the Guild's Troubles, which is more examples of this. It's specifically things that are going wrong with the Guild that you could be called upon to try to help out with. And one of them I really, really love in particular where there's another person, just an NPC that you've never heard of, that the guild is trying to recruit and is also being recruited by an evil cult. And so it's this kind of interesting game here where if you don't succeed, there's consequences. This person is going to join the enemy, and that's kind of cool. But also I particularly love that this isn't really a combat so much, and you're getting the chance to be a diplomatic representative of the guild. Like, you have to put on a good face and speak well of the guild and try to convince somebody that it's good and worthwhile. And I think giving the players the opportunity to have to say out loud why they like the guild and why you should be a part of the guild is a really cool way to emphasize that the guild is a part of your game and also validate the players' choices, make them feel good about the guild they chose to be a part of. And then another thing that they do at the end of this article, as if it wasn't long enough, right. is they give you domain statistics for this faction as well. So if you're using the Kingdoms and Warfare system of domains, you can use the Pickling Guild with this as well. It's a totally optional add-on, but I appreciate that MCDM has been doing this with a lot of their content. They are providing ways for it to interact with all of their other modular pieces of content. So the more and more MCDM content you have, the more useful it is kind of together. It's almost like a one plus one equals three situation. Do you know what my favorite part of this whole thing is actually, Ray? It's just that you go through all these things and you're reading all this stuff and you get sucked in. And every once in a while you remember that the name of this guild is the Pickling Guild. It's like ridiculous. It in a world where so many things are like the Knights of the Silver Dragon or or a cult that follows a kraken, like here you have a guild that is actually just pickling. And it adds like this levity to the game. I think it's really fun and silly and makes it feel secretive and interesting. And it also reminds me of all the different campaigns I've been in where the party had to come up with a name and we came up with something really stupid. Like... Uh, <laughs> we're the Knights of Balloon Day, or... Or the uh, the Tip of Ra. <laughs> the, the Tip of Ra, yeah. With those just weird jokes that, oh, like, don't make any sense boy. and, like, aren't actually people taking themselves seriously. I feel like this article... Yeah. I feel like this article really nails this tone that so many games of D&D have where you want to be doing really cool things, but... You're also playing a game, and it's fun to kind of laugh at these ridiculous names. There's the Ball Eater shows up in Critical Role sometimes, and I feel like the Pickling Guild as, like, the great forces that are fighting against Rot is really fits in with that thematic. And I, I just thought this whole time that you're running through all these, like, crazy, you know, NPCs and adventure hooks and magic items, the fact that 
you look back up and you remember that this is the pickling guild was like really funny i thought it was a really good thing it's a really nice touch i think that this article all throughout just shows an incredible eye to detail and i i really hope that we get more articles by this author because i really see something special in this article that i don't see in every episode of arcadia i think you're right i think while i was reading this i literally thought this was the most thoroughly written and detailed thing that arcadia has put out it is just really really sharp it feels polished it feels like it has more than you need and i think that's a really good thing for a resource to have like it shouldn't be hard to read and it should be enticing which i think the pickling guild definitely is but it should also feel like a resource, like an encyclopedia, where if I'm running this game, I have more than enough. I'm never feeling like I need to, you know, fill in the blanks. There's always something for me to get inspiration from. And if I have a question, there's always something that's going to point me towards an answer. I feel like this was really thorough and really well written. Yeah, I really liked it. And I think it serves as an excellent blueprint for what makes good mechanics for a faction in Dungeons and Dragons. And I think I'll be taking the Cult of the Dragon, which my players have just allied themselves with, and making sure that I have a similar level of detail prepared for that faction now that it's taken center stage in the campaign, just in case my players decide that they really want to move up the ranks in the Cult of the Dragon. Yeah, that'll be really good. I think it'll make your cult seem much more realistic and feel like it's constantly showing up in your players' adventuring. I think that is a really important thing. I've stressed it like six times, but I think it really does make your faction feel like it exists in the world without your players. I think a really big part of realism for me in Dungeons & Dragons is when the world moves and interacts in ways independently from your players, that you aren't just totally the main characters, that things do happen while you're not around. Absolutely. Well, I think that's actually all the time that we have for today, but oh my gosh, I'm really excited now to kind of like dig in and, and work on the, the Cult of the Dragon. So that's probably what I'll do in the next couple of days. Yeah, this is a big win here from Arcadia. I had so much fun reading it and I'm excited to use it too. Until next time, I'm Ariel Rasco. And I'm Raymond O'Connor. And thanks for listening to Running Off the Rails. If you enjoyed Running Off the Rails, please like, follow, and review our show on your platform of choice. Please follow our Instagram, Running Off the Rails, for notifications whenever we release a blog post, a new episode, or new content on the DMs Guild. If you prefer a specific type of content, please send us a message on Instagram. The jam you are listening to is Hoist by Andy G. Cohen, and you can find Hoist and more of Cohen's music on the Free Music Archive. You can find links to all of our content at runningofftherails.com or on our Facebook page, Running Off the Rails. Thank you.